Now in chapter 11, we come now to that which is quite intimate. Paul now speaks of these folk who are joined to the living Christ. Oh, it's so important today for us to see that. I'm more and more convinced that the message of this epistle is a message all of us need. It's been beneficial to me. I've spent more time studying this epistle this time than any other book I've come to in the Bible. And I've found it's had a real message for my own heart. Maybe I've just been talking to myself. But my feeling is, there's a tremendous message here. And he says, would to God. Chapter 11, now verse 1. Would to God. You could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I'm jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. I came to Corinth. I preached the gospel. A church came into existence. And I espoused this church, these people, these believers, to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And I can't overemphasize this today, the simplicity that is in Christ. Oh, today we need more simplicity and getting the Word of God out. I'm so tired of especially young preachers today. And they are just the fruit of our seminaries who are trying to be intellectual. I heard a young man the other day. I couldn't tell what he was talking about. And after I listened to him for 15 minutes, I was convinced he didn't know what he was talking about. He was trying to be intellectual. And he was ending up by saying nothing. May I say to you, What he needed to do is to give out the Word of God, the simplicity that's in Christ. Oh, how that's needed today. Now, you will note that this great man, he's opened up, as it were, his heart to us. And you will notice that in this chapter, he's going to mention this several times. He says, verse 16, "...I say again, let no man think me a fool." If otherwise, yet as a fool receive me, that I may boast myself a little. And then he speaks of boasting that it's foolish. And then verse 19, For ye suffer fools gladly, seeing ye yourselves are wise. Well, of course, he's using sarcasm there on a very high plane. Now, Paul has made it very clear in this section that the enemy was busy in Corinth. That little minority had stirred up trouble against him, and they were trying to discredit his ministry. He explains to them why he didn't spend more time with them. He says, I'm an evangelist. That is, I'm a missionary. For that's really the word. And he says, I don't want to build on another man's foundation. And Paulus has been there, and Peter's been there, and ministered to you, and you've heard these men now. And I'm moving on out to the frontier. And that's the reason, because this is my ministry. This is my service. Now, he says, I want to let you know that I have a ministry and that I am an apostle, I'm an accredited apostle. And then he goes on to say, I'm jealous over you with godly jealousy. Why was this man willing, actually, to make himself a fool, as it were, for them? Well, he said, because I'd much rather speak of Christ than defend myself. But it's now necessary with this little group to defend myself. And so I'm speaking foolishly. Well, what does it mean to speak foolishly? And what is the word foolishness and the fool in the Greek? I think that stupidity, ignorance, or egotism, all of these are meanings of the word. It means actually mindlessness, no purpose in it. That is, it doesn't serve the great purpose of getting out the gospel, and yet Paul feels called upon to do it. And he said, suffer me to be foolish for just a few moments. And he defends his apostleship. 
This is the method of Satan, as we shall see. The devil, at the very beginning, persecuted the church. And he found out he wasn't hurting it. In fact, the matter is, the church never grew as it did those first hundred years. And it swept across the Roman Empire. And by 315 A.D., why, it had gone into every nook and corner of the Roman Empire. And it was during the time of persecution. Well, the devil didn't hurt the church. Then what happened? He decided to join it. And that's when he began to hurt the church. But he began to make his attack upon the Word of God. And that didn't work. And then he did what he always does. He made his attack upon the men who believe and teach the Word of God. In other words, in this case, he hasn't been able to discredit the gospel, so now he attempts to discredit the apostle Paul. And he goes on to say here that for this reason, that he'd rather preach Christ than do this, but he's doing it because he's jealous over them. He loves them. And he's afraid that the serpent that beguiled Eve, and don't think of the serpent as a crawling creature, it was the shining one. He's an angel of light, remember. He beguiled Eve through his subtly, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And again, I call your attention to the fact that the gospel is simple. We hear so much today about the intellectual approach. Honestly, I think you need to be aware of that. Every seminary today is trying to make young men intellectual preachers. And today, the gospel needs to be given with sanctified common sense. That is the thing that's so desperately needed. Now, he says to them in verse 4, "...and if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we've not preached, or if ye receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted," you might well bear with him. Now, some time ago, I gave a message in many places on the subject, Jesus Christ, not superstar, but the bright and morning star. And I fully expected a great deal of opposition to the message because actually some churches have gone for that type of thing. It denies, of course, the deity of Christ, and it presents a Jesus that never lived. In fact, it's just the Jesus of liberalism with a new wardrobe. And the wardrobe is a rather hippie-type affair. And as a result, why, we have the Jesus of liberalism. And the Jesus of liberalism never existed. There's no record of him at all, because they deny the virgin birth, and the only record we have says he was virgin-born. And they do not believe he performed miracles. And as a result, why, they have a different Jesus. Because the one in the Gospels performed miracles. And he died for the sins of the world. They deny that. They deny he was raised from the dead bodily. You see, the only record that we have is of the one who was... God and man, or as the oldest creed has it, he's very God of very God, very man of very man. And this is another Jesus that's being presented today. Now, Paul says, if anyone comes to you preaching about another Jesus, then we preach to you. That's in the Gospels. You're not to accept that one at all. He says here, verse 5, now, for I suppose... I was not a whit behind the very chiefest apostles. Now, I put Paul as number one of the apostles. He himself said he was the least of the apostles. He went to the end of the line, and I put him at the other end of the line. And he wants these Corinthians to know that he's just as much an apostle as any of the others. And he says, "...but though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge." Paul was a brilliant man, but he used simple language. But we have been truly made manifest among you in all things. There are two men that meant a great deal in my life. One was a man in Memphis, Tennessee, 
And he was a brilliant scholar, but oh, how he taught in simplicity. And then Dr. Harry Ironside, that many of you knew, Dr. Ironside, they always speak of him as being a very simple preacher. Well, he wasn't quite as simple as you'd think he was. He was really a very brilliant man. But he preached simply. He put the cookies down where the kiddies could get them. That's important. Now, Paul, I think, actually adopted the language that the Corinthians would understand. And I'm of the opinion it was a rather rude approach. I have a letter from someone, got it some time ago, and he gives me quite a lecture for using the term that the psychologists have used today, and it's well understood and known what it means, and it's the term hang-up. Well, I've adopted it because I'm of the opinion that everyone knows what it means. Well, this man told me how the expression began, and he deals with the dirty side of it. Well, May I say to you, they said that about Paul, and he's using rude language. But Paul was one of the most brilliant men that I think that's ever walked this earth. I believe that he had the highest IQ of any man. Now he says, but we have been truly made manifest among you in all things. And he says, you would know this. Verse 7, have I committed an offense in abasing myself? that ye might be exalted because I preached to you the gospel of God freely. You see, Paul would not let the Corinthians give anything to him at all. And he did it, and as a result, he had to work. And this man had to work hard making tents. And because he had corns on his hands, it didn't mean that he was not an outstanding apostle. He says, "'I robbed other churches.'" taking wages of them to do you service. Now, in Macedonia, we are told, and when I was present with you and wanted, I was chargeable to no man. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. And in all things, I've kept myself from being burdensome unto you, and so will I keep myself. What a tremendous statement this man makes. He said, I won't let you give me anything. And as the truth of Christ is in me, no man shall stop me of this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Now, Paul said, I'm boasting, but I'm doing it because it's the truth. I'm jealous of you, and I'm fearful of you. Now he goes on, Wherefore, because I love you not, God knoweth. But what I do, that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, that wherein they glory, they may be found even as we. They are beginning to say, well, Apollos, you know, is such a polished speaker when he comes to us. He doesn't engage in tent making or any work like that. Well, Paul did. Verse 13, but such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. Now, evidently, there were false apostles, there were deceitful workers, and they attempted to make themselves apostles of Christ, and they were not. Now, who were they? No marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. I don't have time to develop that as we have in other places And I'll have occasion to talk about this again several times. And that is that the idea that Satan has cloven feet and horns and that type of thing is entirely erroneous. That comes from the great god Pan. It comes out of Greek mythology. And the great god Pan is half animal, you know. And they worshipped him as Dionysius. And that's not the scriptural viewpoint. Satan is an angel of light. And if you could see him, he made himself visible to you, you'd see the most beautiful angel you've ever seen. Now, Paul draws from that this conclusion. Verse 15, Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their work. Now, this is something that makes your hair stand on end. And it's this, does Satan have ministers? And the answer is yes. That's what Paul said. 
And his ministers are very attractive. When I was just a boy in my teens, and I didn't know anything, hadn't been brought up in a Christian family, I went to hear a lecturer of a certain cult. And I won't mention that name of that cult. But this man read questions from the audience. I'm of the opinion no one asks this question, but he wanted to make the point. He says, somebody had said, I noticed that there is a halo of light around your head. Can you explain that? Well, I took a good second look. I didn't see a halo of light around his head. But you see what he's doing. He's making himself a minister of light. All of Satan's ministers glorify themselves. And you can tell whether a man is preaching the simplicity of the Word of God or whether he's preaching some other Jesus and preaching some other gospel. Now again, listen to him. I say again, let no man think me a fool, if otherwise, yet as a fool receive me, that I may boast myself a little. That which I speak, I speak it not after the Lord, but as it were foolishly. This is mindlessness. Paul says, indulge me in this. And then he goes on, he has quite an apology here, seeing that many glory after the flesh, I'll glory also. For ye suffer fools gladly, seeing ye yourselves are wise. And believe me, that's holy sarcasm. Then he goes on, for ye suffer if a man bring you into bondage. That is, if he preaches the law to you. If a man devour you, if a man take of you, if a man exalt himself, if a man smite you on the face. You take that. Now, Paul says, you'll certainly indulge me this. Now, listen to him. And now I come to a section, and I do want to say this, that when I come to this, it makes me realize I'll just have to make a confession. I've been in the ministry a long time. And when I read what this man went through, I recognize I've just been playing at it. I haven't really been a real servant of Christ. Listen to this man. Now, I want to just read this. That's all. It speaks for itself. Listen to him. I speak as concerning reproach. This is verse 21. As though we had been weak, howbeit whereinsoever any is bold, I speak foolishly. I'm bold also. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Paul says, I can back up my genealogy. No question about who he was. Now, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I'm more. Listen to him. He's more. I guess I can just say I'm a minister. But Paul can say I'm more. Listen to this. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in death oft. Of the Jews five times received I forty stripes save one. You see, they would not beat anyone to death, and in order to keep from doing it, they give them thirteen stripes on one side, thirteen stripes on the other side, thirteen stripes in the back. And this was the method then. Thrice was I beaten with rods. That was the Roman method of doing it. Once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I had been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. How many of us today that are ministers, how many of us can say that we've been through this? Why, my friend, we have been in the lap of luxury. Most of us have. We live in an affluent society and... We know nothing of these hardships for Jesus' sake. Now listen to him. Beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Now many of us know what the burden of a church is. I 
have rejoiced in my retirement. The greatest part of my ministry has been since I retired. Oh, the burden that some of these pastors have today of a church. I know what it is. Now, listen to him. He says, who is weak? And I'm not weak. Who is offended? And I burn not. If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern mine infirmities. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knoweth that I lie not. Paul says, here is my report. That's his report as a minister of Jesus Christ. Now he says in Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king kept the city of the Damascenes with a garrison desirous to apprehend me, and through a window in a basket was I let down by the wall and escaped his hands. None of us know what this is. How embarrassing it must have been to be let down in a basket. I can speak for myself and not for others, and I think they would have to say the same thing. When I go to a city to hold a meeting, a Bible conference, they put me always in a nice place, and they're very hospitable to me, and I'm received with dignity. But Paul, imagine they let him down a window sitting in a basket. That's embarrassing, friends. But Paul did that for Jesus' sake. I don't want to hear anybody bragging today about how they are suffering for Christ. Read this over, and then it will make you bow your head in shame and say, Oh, Lord Jesus, help me to be true to you. Help me to be faithful to you. Now, friends, we come to this remarkable 12th chapter of Second Corinthians. Now, we've had a great deal in our day about space travel, and a great deal is said about it. Men now have been to the moon. (laughs) But actually, let me say this, that so far there hasn't been very much space travel. Did you know that it's a long distance in my book to the moon, but when you begin to measure from here out even to Mars or any of the other planets... The distance to the moon isn't very far. And when you begin to measure that distance to our neighboring star of Andromeda, the galaxy that's way out there in space, then, friends, you just have to say that man hadn't been very far yet. But the very interesting thing is the Bible has the record of three men who journeyed into outer space, and they returned. And none of them were in the Old Testament. Now, I know somebody's going to say, what about Enoch and Elijah? I do not think they were caught up to heaven. The Lord Jesus said, no man has ascended into heaven. Now, that was in the Old Testament. And somebody is going to say, well, I thought Elijah was caught up to heaven. But after all, there are three heavens. He was caught up into the air spaces. Now, Up to the time Jesus made that statement, possibly no one had been in outer space. Now, Jesus is, of course, the one exception. He said, the Son of Man came down from heaven. But we have then two others. John on the Isle of Patmos. You recall that he tells us about a trip that he made. He was caught up into heaven. And that, I take it, was the third heaven, where the throne of God is. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I'll show thee things which must be hereafter. Now, that's Revelation 4.1. John was caught up, and now Paul, and the record is here in this chapter, and therefore there are three men that have been able to report from heaven. One is the Lord Jesus, but he is God manifest in the flesh. And actually, he said very little about it. And he said probably more than anyone else had said, but he said very little. And John doesn't have too much to say about it. And Paul here, he doesn't have anything to say about it. Now, let's look at this. Because Paul is telling something here that he ordinarily would not have told at all. He tells about a trip he made into outer space. 
Now, will you listen to it? He says, it is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. Now, you remember, we saw in the last chapter, he told about what he had endured. And a very interesting thing, the Spirit of God permitted him to write that down. And to write that down so I think no man would be able to say today, I've endured more than Paul the Apostle. And some of us haven't endured very much for him. I think today we actually ought to be a little careful about singing certain songs. For instance, this song, Jesus, I my cross have taken, all to leave and follow thee, naked, poor, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. (laughs) And I heard a so-called converted Hollywood star sing that. Well, I want to tell you, that party hadn't given up very much, and I think it's hypocritical to sing that. I don't sing anyway, but that's one song I would not nor could I sing. I think that I'd like to sing this one if I could. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? It's the Lord Jesus that needs to be glorified. Now, let me put this down as a norm today. And many of you folk listen to testimonies from men and women that tell about their conversion. Generally, you hear of remarkable ones because we just don't tell about the ordinary one. But the thing that I note in these testimonies is what place does Jesus occupy? I listened to one the other day, and all the fellow had to say was what had happened to him, that he was a sinner. And honestly, he had very little to say about the Lord Jesus. You wondered whether he really needed him or not. By the time he got through, may I say to you, I did not feel that the Lord Jesus got any praise or glory in that testimony at all. Paul here tells about how he suffered for Christ's sake. Now he says, I glory in these things that's happened to me. But he said, I could tell you also about visions and revelations. He says, I'll come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now, the Lord had appeared to him. But have you ever noticed that Paul has very little to say about those personal appearances? Now, here is one. But then he still doesn't tell us what actually transpired. He says, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. Whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth such an one caught up to the third heaven. Now, what is the third heaven? Well, the airspace is above us. The Lord Jesus spoke of the birds of the heaven. Well, that's the air spaces. They can't fly beyond it. And then there are the stars of heaven. They are out beyond the atmosphere. And then there's the third heaven where the throne of God is. And that's how ridiculous it was when that Sputnik that the Russians put up the first time, they said that they'd been out there on the other side of the moon and they didn't see God. Well, they didn't go far enough, friends. It'd have to go much farther than that, the third heaven. Now, Paul, speaking of his own experience. Now, could we date that? Well, he says it happened 14 years before he wrote this epistle. That actually would put it approximately at the time that he made his first missionary journey. And we are told on that first missionary journey that he came to Lystra, yonder in the Galatian country, and I read now, Acts fourteen nineteen, and there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Well, was he? I don't think they would have left him unless they were pretty sure he was dead. And God raised him from the dead. Now, Paul was rather uncertain whether this was a vision or whether at that time he was caught up in reality. And he is describing his own experience, which I think is quite evident. 
He says, And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God know it. Now, was he slain and caught up? Actually, Paul could not tell you that. Or whether he was just knocked unconscious, he had this vision. And Paul's not dogmatic about it. Maybe we shouldn't be. But I have a notion God raised him from the dead. The result was the same. He saw the third heaven. Now, what was his report? Well, if a man had written this, we'd have several volumes of ponderous tomes on this. I tell you, he would have given quite a series of messages on it. And the very interesting thing is, the man that went over the wall in a basket is also the man caught up to the third heaven. Now he says here, how that he was caught up into paradise, and he heard unspeakable words which it's not lawful for a man to utter. There's no report. As someone has said, man having said so much could not have said so little. Having mentioned this much, he should have gone on. There's no description. There's no chamber of commerce description of it. No promotion, no sales talk, no details, no display, no hero worship of man. What he says here, of such an one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. Now, Paul says, I tell you about my infirmities, but I'm not going to tell you what I saw in the third heaven. Why? Well, because he's told not to. He's told that he's not to speak of this. He says, for though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh." It's the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Now, I think many times Satan tries to move some of us from the earthly scene. He wants to get rid of us, and he uses, I think, sickness, disease, our thorn in the flesh. Now, what was Paul's thorn in the flesh? And I want to let you in on something today, I think. I can give you now a little secret information. I hope you will not divulge this to anyone, because this is sort of secret between us, and I wouldn't want the word to get out, and it's this. I don't know. (laughs) May I say to you, I don't know what he saw up there, and I don't know what his thorn in the flesh is. And an old Scotch commentator, he said that, He had a wife, and that was his thorn in the flesh. And I bet that old Scott was having trouble at home. I don't think it was that at all. Paul wrote so lovingly of womanhood that very candidly, I think that he had been married, but he was a widower at this time, and he would not marry because he didn't want to subject any woman to these hardships that he had gone through. The very interesting thing here. God put a zipper on the mouth of Paul and silenced him. He just didn't tell you about this. He's quiet. He's silent. Someone has said that the reason a dog has so many friends is because he wags his tail instead of his tongue. And I'm afraid that a great many of us would have wagged our tongue had we been caught up to the third heaven. Now he's given this thorn in the flesh. Why? Well, that was to keep him humble. That was to keep him from exalting himself above measure, having had the vision that he had had. And he says, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. Now, I have a notion it was blindness, but I can't prove that. When we get to the Galatians, I'll attempt to enlarge upon it. But I'm of the opinion that it was blindness. And Paul says, I went to the Lord three times about it, and I asked him to remove the thorn in my flesh. And finally, the Lord said to him the third time, he says, I heard you the first time, Paul, and I answered your prayer. I said, no. And that's the thing about most of us, is we keep asking the Lord for something, 
And he's already said no. And he said no to Paul. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for thee. I'll not remove the thorn, but I'm going to give you grace to bear the thorn. And that's the wonderful thing about it all. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And in other words, it was obvious when Paul went around, he was so physically weak that it was the Spirit of God leading this man. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So Paul says, I glory in infirmities and not the fact that I've had a vision. And you might turn that over in your mind the next time you hear somebody telling you about a great vision that they've had of the Lord. The chances are they need a zipper put on their mouth. And the chances are they had no vision at all. They just ate something they shouldn't have had for dinner the night before. Now Paul says, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. And what a contrast you have between this man and Samson. The Spirit of God came upon Samson. He was strong, you see. People marvel at his physical strength. But there came a day when he's very weak. The strong are weak, but the weak are made strong. And God can use the weak man. Now he says, I am become a fool in glory. Notice how he elaborates on this. He's apologized a dozen times already. He says, I'm become a fool in glory. You've compelled me, for I ought to have been commended of you. For in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. Paul considered himself the least, but he says, I'm not behind even the chiefest of the apostles. And somebody should have defended him, but apparently no one did. Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Now, may I say this? I recognize this is not too popular today, but somebody needs to say it. There were certain signs of an apostle, and only the apostles had it. And apparently, it was to heal the sick, raise the dead, and to talk in tongues. And I don't mean an unknown tongue, but... Paul went through the Galatian country, and there must have been 50 dialects and languages in that area. Paul could speak them all. Why? He'd studied them? No. He was not a member of the Wycliffe Bible translators. Now, today, God says that the gospel has to go out by human beings. Now, in that early day, it was necessary to get it out into the Roman Empire in a hurry. And these apostles had the signs of an apostle. Now, they were wrought among you. Now, signs of an apostle will end with the apostle. And I hope that's understood. Somebody will write me and say, how do you know tongues have ended? Well, because the apostles are gone. You show me an apostle today, and I believe in your sign gift. But the sign gifts belong to apostles. Now, this is a very wonderful section that we've come through here. And Paul accepted the thorn. And God sealed his lips. Why? Heaven's too wonderful to contemplate. Get your eyes off of that type of thing and fix your eyes today upon a lost world. Heaven's a wonderful place, but very little is said about it in the Word of God. And it's going to be so wonderful that you couldn't describe it in human language. But my friend, today we ought to try to get folk who want to go there. Now, not because of the place, because I can't tell you much about it, but I can tell you about the person who is there. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you fix your eyes on him, oh, how this epistle has emphasized that. Beholding him, we are going to grow. And beholding the glory of the Lord, we need to behold him. And friends, as we do, it's going to make the pilgrim journey through this world a great deal easier today. The sun won't be as hot. 
The burning sands of the desert won't be as bad, and the storms of life will not be as bad if we keep our eye fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, friends, Paul, having told us about being caught up to the third heaven, is experienced there, not able to tell us. Someone has said that one of the reasons he is not able to tell us that if he had been able to, why, there would be a mass exodus out of this world to get there. Well, I don't know about that, but I do know this. Paul was given a thorn in the flesh that he might not be lifted up too much. God kept this man a very humble man, by the way, and we see that now in this section. Paul says, "...for what is it wherein you were inferior to other churches?" except it be that I myself was not burdensome to you. Forgive me this wrong. Behold, the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I'll not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours, but you. He was after them. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. Paul had been their spiritual father. You see, he had founded the church in Corinth. And then he says, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. It sounds like a complaint, does it not, on the part of Paul. But the Spirit of God has insisted that he tell about these things and not tell about what he saw in heaven. To tell about his burdens down here, and one of them was... He loved these people, but many had not loved him in return. Verse 16, But be it so, I did not burden you, nevertheless being crafty, I caught you with guile. Now, I think here that we need to recognize that though we are to be fishermen of man, that what Paul is actually saying here is this. That's what they were saying, the enemies of Paul in the church in Corinth. They were being, I think, very unfair to this man. And they said, well, he came over here and he used cleverness and he used these different methods to get us. But Paul didn't use that. He says, did I make a gain of you by any of them whom I sent unto you? He says, I didn't use these methods and I didn't send other men along to make a gain of you. And he says in verse 18, I desired Titus, and with him I sent a brother. Did Titus make a gain of you? Walked we not in the same spirit? Walked we not in the same steps? And Titus was the same way among them. Now listen to him again in verse 19. He says, again, Think ye that we excuse ourselves unto you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. For I fear, lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as ye would not, lest there be debates, Now, notice this. These are the things that Paul actually expected to find in the church there. They expected a great deal of Paul. Paul expected a great deal of them. But what would they find? Well, there would be debates, people arguing. I've got to the place now in my ministry, very candidly, and this may answer some who listen to the program, And write me. Every now and then I get a long letter. I can always tell it from the outside. It's generally a ponderous letter. And it's someone taking up some doctrine or something I've said, and they want to debate about it. Now, friends, I'm in no mood now to debate. You go on with your viewpoint and then pray for me. If I'm wrong, that I'll see the truth. But you will not convince me with a long letter, one that's debating with me, and I'll tell you why. I don't read them. (laughs) I don't fool with reading them. Somebody says, well, then you're very bigoted and narrow-minded. Well, maybe I am, but I'm not debating anymore. I don't believe that's the way that we're going to get anywhere. Our business is to get the Word of God out 
And I'm not attempting to debate anything. I just teach it as I come to it. And I'm not going around the corners or escaping anything. I just take it as we come to it. And I recognize we step on toes every now and then. So I'll not debate with you. But the church is filled with that today. And endings. My, how that's in the church today. Endings. And then there's rats. And then there's stripes. Oh, the strife that's going on. And then there's the backbiting. I tell you, that's the thing that's bad. The backbiting. Have you heard about so-and-so? And somebody says, no, I haven't heard. And they say, well, I want to tell you. And they tell you something pretty mean about the individual. Backbitings. And then whisperings. And someone has said that some people will believe anything if it's whispered to them. Whisperings, you know. And swellings. And I have often wondered about this word swellings. Probably the best Explanation is the explanation I heard Dr. Ironside give of it. He said this reminded him of a frog. You know, sometimes you see a frog sitting on the bank of a creek or a pond, and, oh, he's swelling up. He's twice as big as he'd ordinarily be. And then what happens? Well, you throw a rock at him, and believe me, he becomes little again and goes right down into the water. I would say the best word that would describe this would be pompous. There are some pompous Christians, you know, very pompous. And then there are tumults causing trouble in the church, little cliques that get together and cause trouble, circulate something to be signed, that type of thing. Now notice, and lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and that I shall bewail Many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they've committed. Now, Corinth was a vile city. It was known throughout the Roman Empire as a sin center. It was the Las Vegas and Reno and any other city that you want to put with it all rolled into one. It was the place people went to sin. And where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. But it caused the people there to look lightly upon these things. And I'm not sure that many do that today. Now, this doesn't present a very pretty picture of the church. I'm sure that many of you today, as we've gone through this epistle, you say, my, the church is certainly not a very pretty thing here, the local church. And that's true. And not only is that true of this church, I think that's true of many today. But now, let's look at this for just a moment. Suppose that the Lord took the church out of the world right now. That is, his church, the believers that are in the world. And what would happen? Well, we believe that the Great Tribulation is going to begin, and part of the contribution to the Great Tribulation will be the absence of the church. The church today is salt in the world and light in the world. And the Holy Spirit indwells the church. And very candidly, the question arises, is the world getting better or worse? And some people say that the church hasn't improved the world because the world is worse than it was 1,900 years ago. Well, I disagree with that altogether. Somebody comes along and quotes, "...evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived." Now, a great many people quote that. But the Scripture doesn't say the world is getting worse. It says the evil man shall wax worse and worse. They will in their lifetime, then another generation comes on. But I would say that the world today is a little better than it was 1,900 years ago. Because 1,900 years ago, the world committed a sin that would have been an unpardonable sin had not the Lord Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They crucified the Son of God. Now, I recognize that the world today, by its rejection of Jesus Christ, is crucifying him afresh. The greatest sin in the world is rejection of Christ. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes... 
The Lord Jesus said that. He'll convict the world of sin. What kind of sin? Of sin because they believe not on me. Now, as bad as some of these other sins might be, the worst sin is to reject Jesus Christ today. Therefore, the greatest crime that was ever committed was committed 1,900 years ago when the Son of God was murdered on this earth. Now, I believe that today the world is probably just as corrupt, just as vile, just as mean and wicked as it was 1,900 years ago. But may I say to you, it's a better place to have a home in than it was 1,900 years ago. You could be more comfortable in the world today. And there are a great many things that make life a little better than it was 1,900 years ago. But we need to understand it was never the purpose of the church to plant flowers in the world any more than it was Israel's business to plant flowers in the wilderness. They were pilgrims passing through it. And they had a message and a witness. And that has been the purpose of the church down through the age. Now, the church today is to be a group of people that ought to be holy unto God, ought to live for God. And I wish that we could point to the church and say it's wonderful. I think that's one of the reasons that this present interest in the Word of God and this present movement we're seeing today has bypassed the local church. It's so busy with its internal problems, so busy criticizing and finding fault, that the world has just pretty much passed them by. But that doesn't destroy the fact that the church today is that group which the Lord Jesus Christ loved. He gave himself for it, that he might wash it, he might cleanse it, and make us acceptable to God. Now, we're far from it, but... We ought to be moving in that direction. And so here, you have an insight in a church in the worst city in the Roman Empire, and how bad it was. I don't like for people to say that the church today is not in any way affecting the world. Now, I think it's affecting it very little. But if it was removed today, I tell you, there'd be a group of godly people that'd be removed from this world, and as a result the world would be much worse when the church is removed. Now, let me move on into chapter 13 here, because we are going to finish. So help me, friends, we're going to finish this today. Now, as we come here to this 13th chapter, the last chapter that we have, we have first the execution of Paul's apostleship in the first 10 verses, then the conclusion of Paul's apostleship, 11 through 14. Now, again, Paul repeats it. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Paul went to him the third time, by the way. And he says, In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. In other words, Paul's not going on hearsay. Everything is to be authenticated when he gets there. Everything is going to be brought right out in the open. And Paul's going to exercise his office as an apostle. And he's going to show proof of his apostleship through the power of Christ working in Paul's weakness. Listen to him. I told you before and foretell you as if I were present the second time and being absent now I write to them which heretofore have sinned and to all other that if I come again I'll not spare since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you it is not weak, but is mighty in you. Paul came there in weakness, but the word of God was mighty and transformed them in this sin-sick city. And we have here, for though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Now we have here something about the weakness of God. What is the weakness of God? It's when he went to the cross, my friend. That was the weakness of God. And Paul makes it very clear here that we ought to make a regular inventory to see whether we're in the faith or not. Will you listen to this? This is important. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. 
Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobate. Now, I think every Christian regularly, and this hasn't anything to do with free will or election or the security of the believer, but this is an inventory that every believer ought to make. Well, I think we ought to make it two or three times during the year. Examine yourself. See whether you be in the faith or not. You're willing really to face up to it. And they should see whether they're in the faith or not. When my daughter was growing up, she made a confession of her faith to her mother when they were back visiting her grandmother in Texas. She came in one day and said to out of a clear sky, she said to my wife, said, I won't accept Jesus as my Savior. And so they went in the bedroom. She got down on her knees and accepted Christ. And so regularly after that, she's just a little thing then, I'd ask her. And finally, when she got up in her teens, she said, Daddy, why do you keep asking me whether I'm a Christian or not, whether I really trust Jesus? I said, I just want to make sure. After all, you're my offspring, and I sure want to make sure. Oh, friends, not only did I do it for her, I did it for myself. I think every believer ought to do that. Now, listen to Paul. But I trust that ye shall know that we are not reprobates. He said, I want you to know I've made an inventory, and I know I'm not. Now I pray to God that ye do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that ye should do that which is honest, though we be as reprobates. Paul says, I just want you folk to be the type of believers you should be. Now here's another great truth. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. My friend, you can't do anything against the truth. I don't worry about these folk today that are disagreeing. That's all right. You can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. This is a great verse. We should declare the Word of God, therefore not defend it. It doesn't need defending. Just declare it. Just give it out. Oh, that's the important thing. Let's give it out. We can't do anything against the truth, but for the truth. And God will bless that. For we are glad when we are weak and we are strong And this also we wish even your perfection. Now, what he means is not perfect in the sense we think of it, but that you grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ, that you be mature, that you be mature Christians. Or what he's really saying is this, grow up. We hear that sometimes. Somebody says to another, why don't you grow up? Well, Paul says grow up. That's what he means here. He says, therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification and not to destruction. Now, Paul says that he's glad he can write to him at this time. Now, he says, finally, brethren, farewell, be perfect. Again, he comes to this. What he's saying is, grow up, grow up over there in Corinth. And that's something you could say to a lot of churches today and to a lot of believers today. Why don't you grow up? Stop this baby stuff and be of good comfort. Now we are back at the word that began this epistle, the comfort of God. What does it mean again? It means help. It means one call to our side to help us, to strengthen us, to encourage us. God wants to do that today for you, friend. I don't know who you are, where you are, how you are, why you are. But out yonder, he wants to help you. And he can help you through his word and ministering to you by the Holy Spirit. He can help you. Oh, my friend, this is, this is great. And what a great verse we just had. We can do nothing against the truth but for the truth. Oh, to go forward today for God. Now he says here, be of one mind, that is, the mind of Christ. Live in peace. Now, you live in peace. You can't make it, but you can live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. Now, what is that? What's the peace of God that passeth all understanding? It's peace that he made by the blood of his cross. Live in that peace today. Just rejoice in your salvation. And he says here, And the God of love and peace shall be with you. God's with you. Don't miss that. 
He's with you today, friends. Oh, how wonderful this is. You're not alone. He's with you today. And then, he's very personal here at the end. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I hope you won't mind me telling this. The late Dr. Walter Wilson and a friend came to see him and his lovely wife. And the friend greeted Dr. Wilson because he was such a wonderful saint of God with a kiss. And then he kissed his wife. And he said to Dr. Wilson, he says, Now, when I greet you, it's a holy kiss. But when I kiss your wife, wow! May I say to you, friends, make sure it's a holy kiss. If you're going to kiss the sisters, I would suggest that we confine it to our same sex, by the way. Now, verse 14, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And here he ends with that word, you all. So don't mind my accent, because Paul had the same accent, friend. He says, may all of the blessing of the Trinity be with you all. And that means all of you out there today. Oh, friends, we ought to revel in what we have in Christ. And today, we ought to try to bear a witness today, not only to the world, but in our church. There ought to be a real witness there today. And by the way, there are a lot of churches, it's difficult. It's easier to bear witness in the world today than it is in some churches. And that's true. But if you're in that church, you and I should bear witness. Well, this brings us to the end of 2 Corinthians. We'll see you next time in the book of Esther.